In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars, one oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. And this is episode 30. Joining me today is my Streetwise co-host, Patrick Pister. Hey, Mark. How are you doing today? Doing awesome, Patrick. We're at a great little conference here learning even more about process safety. It is. It's a small conference, but a lot of value out of the speakers. A lot of great speakers. And speaking of the great speakers, we actually grabbed one of them. We have a Dennis Taylor with the Doom, is it Doonberry Tackleberry? Uh, it's Dooley Tackleberry. Dooley Tackleberry. How are you yeah. doing today, Dennis? Well, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So before we get into what your specialization is, we want to talk a little bit about your journey. Um, how did you get into the oil and gas industry? Well, actually, to be honest with you, I actually started out roughnecking on a drilling rig. Wow, so, what year was that? <laughs> that would have been starting in the early 60s. Oh my God, that's when it really was roughnecking. Uh, th- that's true, yeah. that's true. Yeah, so you started roughnecking in the 60s. I mean, that was like the cowboy days of the oil and gas industry. Um, and then what happened after you started roughnecking? Well, uh, I think that uh, it progressed over a period of time. Uh, I actually uh, started going to school because one of the things that roughnecking taught me real quickly was that uh, I wanted to be able to get off the drill floor. <laughs> uh, back in those days, uh, to be honest with you, there were a lot of accidents and a lot of injuries. Uh, and it was uh, something that obviously uh, could be improved on. And so that sort of gravitated toward what I ended up with, uh, what we call process safety now. Um, but some of it was initially was just safety. Um, but I realized over a period of time that uh, it wasn't just the training of their employees. It wasn't just the personal protective equipment. But, uh, but it was also the type of procedures, the type of equipment. Uh, and as I heard a conversation today, we've gotten to the point now to where, you know, we're trying to automate the drill floor so that we take those people completely out of the, of the picture that would lead, you know, to injuries. So it's just been this gradual evolution over many, many years, but it actually started out on the drill floor as, as a uh, roughneck. Do you mind uh, if I ask you what was the company that you're roughnecking for? Baker and Taylor. Wow. Uh, yeah, that was, was a long time ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was, we, we were running the big triples going down, you know, about 25,000 feet uh, up in the Texas Panhandle, Oklahoma Panhandle. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I started out, was throwing a spin and chain and eventually graduated to the derricks because I thought that was safer than being <laughs> on the drill floor. <laughs> it's, um, and so then you went to school, and then what happened after school? Well, actually, uh, after I went to school, uh, I went to work uh, for and have been for the last 30 years working for engineering and construction companies, uh, a couple of those one was 20 years with Bechtel Corporation. Uh, uh, Bechtel's and, a huge yeah, global organization. And a, a global organization. And uh, they actually uh, would do a lot of lump sum turnkey work all over the world. So that enabled me to, to start to broaden my experience out far from just uh, poking a hole in the ground all the way through, you know, bringing the oil out of the ground, transporting it, refining it, and then actually into the chemical side of it. So uh, that 
20 years with Bechtel really broadened out my exposure. Well, those to, are wildly uh, different skill bases. That's not just, it's oil and gas isn't just one big industry. It's, it's a global a thing. A bunch of stuff. Yeah. It, it feeds everything, actually. And so with Bechtel, did you uh, do some projects around the world? Oh, absolutely. I've, I've been uh, on just about every continent, and I've done just about every type of uh, project that you can imagine. Nine years ago, I relocated to, uh, well, was wooed away, I guess is the <laughs> word, by Whirly Parsons, and uh, they... Uh, well, another they, large, big EPC company. Uh, very yeah. large, and uh, was the uh, technical director for process safety and fire protection for Whirly Parsons. And so, so you were doing process safety and fire protection for Whirly Parsons clients on the projects that they awarded Whirly Parsons. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that's and once correct. again, that's a global organization. Uh, it it uh, certainly is, and um, again, there was a incredible variety of projects that uh, that I was exposed to uh, and at one time my department actually consisted of some 46 professionals in in the department so we we covered a lot of territory and a lot of projects and with 46 people you had to now learn managerial skills right leadership uh, skills actually that was the easy part of it uh, the the one of the things that that as a matter of fact I talked about in the uh, presentation today was trying to keep up with the evolution of technology. Uh, understand if I started back on a drill floor in 1962 uh, and what we have today in the way of the technologies that are available and also the processes that we're exposed to um, it, it's just been an incredible challenge to try to keep up with uh, the technology advances and then how to actually communicate those things that we wanted to communicate to upper management uh, in process safety um, and that's been probably for me much more difficult than the managing of professionals is understanding how to try to keep up with the technology and then how to communicate that and make that effective when you're communicating with upper management. Yeah, we were talking about that at lunch, that, that literally it, technology is evolving so fast that you can't keep up. You have to pay attention to the parts that pertain to you, just knowing that everything else is going to pass you by. And if it becomes important, you can go learn that later. And, well, and, and the, the thing is that, that by the time you decide that's important and you try to go <laughs> master that, uh, you'll find out that uh, there's a, something else uh, has just evolved. So it, it's this incredible challenge to just try to stay up with uh, the technology, uh, and as you said, certainly in your, your specific field. Now, one of the things that I think is fascinating is process safety as a technology. It is also one of the technologies that is evolving rapidly. Things like process controls, the uh, ability for uh, the machines to actually act without people involved. But if, correct me if I'm wrong here, Dennis, all that doesn't really matter unless you build it right from the conception stage. That's, a, that's an excellent point, and that leads uh, into uh, the company that I now work for, Dooley Tackaberry. Uh, what, what we found, and my, I found over that 30 years with ENCs, was that roughly 70% of major projects fail in one way or another. Typically, they're over budget, uh, they're behind schedule, or they've just got a client that's uh, very unhappy with them. So what uh, I found was that the most important part, even though process safety is a relatively small part of any major project, it actually is key. And the earlier you can bring process safety into the, to the equation, the sooner you recognize where your hazards are and you start to develop plans for managing those hazards. 
And so what uh, my role now with Dooley Tackleberry is as international project director. And the intent of that is to go in and work with clients all the way from a conceptual stage through the feed stage, through detail design, uh, and then through construction so that they have basically a much better chance of that project being successful. Uh, and, and to be honest, the uh, principles that are involved in process safety not only have to do with, uh, the, let's say, the protection of personnel and the protection of assets, but it also can be the protection of actually meeting budget, meeting schedule, and making sure that, in fact, you've got a client that, that's uh, satisfied with the project itself. Yeah, you know, that's a, I haven't thought about that that way, but you're right. If if your process safety is done properly, it actually guarantees the efficiency of your business so that you hit whatever those deliverables and milestones are. Absolutely right. It's, it's, it's interesting in the fact that uh, obviously the earlier you can recognize, and again, I want to, when I use the word hazard, that's just simply exactly what that is, is a hazard, and that can be to anything that you identify uh, as something that's an obstacle to meeting your objectives, and that can be, you know, again, budget schedule, uh, certainly personnel exposure, but protection of assets. Uh, one of the things that we found is that if you don't incorporate that philosophy very early in a project and have a rigorous system so that you can manage it, then you're, you're going to encounter schedule delays, you're going to encounter budget overruns, you're going to encounter clients that you simply have not met their expectations. So obviously, they've spent $5 billion, you overran the project by 50%, no, that's not gonna be a happy client. <laughs> no, and imagine having to be that guy to go say, hey, yeah, you know, we said $5 billion, but really it's $7.5 billion, and that's with a B. Yeah, that's not going to be a good conversation. And, and I can tell you, if you go and look at uh, the history of these projects, what you're going to find is the majority of them, actually, that occurs. And what's interesting is that even though our technology has improved, the ability to control the human factor has not really improved that much. And that's one of the things that, that a company like Dooley Tackaberry brings to the table is that we basically try to incorporate a, a cradle-to-grave philosophy. And that way you don't have different people pointing fingers at each other because one part didn't uphold their part of the deal or the bargain. So by you doing that, we believe that we can, can definitely improve the likelihood that that project is going to be successful in the end. Yeah, so it's one of the things I find interesting. So this is our 30th show, and, and I'm not an HSE professional. Um, Patrick's HSE professional, but the thing that I hear that I see uh, it, with all the shows we did, is eventually it boils back to people. Absolutely, yeah. that's, that's that's what's so fascinating. And, and you know, I heard a conversation earlier where we were talking about uh, automation on the drill floor. And of course, you know, they've done that manufacturing across the board. When you look at that, though, what that means is that we may have taken them off the off the drill table, for example. But uh, that also means that there's got to be people that write the programs, that still to build the hardware. It's different. But it's still people. And again, if, if uh, you don't have a system in place, for example, to manage the software development and implementation, you're going to run into the same problems as if you've got an engineering company that just simply fails to follow engineering protocol. So it, it, roles are changing, but they still involve people. And frankly, most of the reasons that these projects have problems is people problems, yeah. not, not, not software, not hardware. And that brings up something on, in the offshore world. I remember, you know, all these dual derricks, it's the, that's a new technology. It's supposed to be very efficient. But one of the issues they have is you can offline stand build with the second derrick, but 
they don't want people on the floor if that block's moving. So how do you do anything on the other, the other side of the table? So there was a lot of technology put into this. Let's be more efficient. Let's get faster. And then they're realizing there's actually people still out there doing these jobs and, and putting their hands on the equipment that they have now reintroduced into a problem that they, they thought they had gotten rid of. That's absolutely true. And, and that, again, I'm going to say that uh, I did some work uh, with uh, ABB a, a number of years ago in automation uh, because they were, and this has <laughs> it's been many years ago now, but, but one of the things that we found was that you still have to have people that understand the work process itself so that you can, in fact, develop equipment that replaces them. But then you've got to have the software to operate that equipment. So it, it again, goes back to what we were just talking about, that even though the technology has changed the way we do business, it still requires people, and it still requires people who are competent and know what they're doing. But it also requires, I want to touch on this briefly, it requires a systematic approach. You know, one of the speakers this morning, uh, as a matter of fact, was talking about that, about the fact that, well, there's just not enough funding for, for procedures to be developed, but, but I would propose to you that uh, it's one of those things that, that you simply cannot afford to not have procedures in place that are understood, that are agreed with, and that goes into this whole subject of risk management. You know, if you just had a programmer try to write the, the program for equipment that was on the drill floor, I can't imagine what the results would be, but they certainly would be disastrous. They, they wouldn't accomplish the end, which not only is to protect people, but it's to increase the efficiency you know, of, of the operation itself. I read an article not too long ago, and they talked about uh, Apple, as a matter of fact, and uh, if the uh, systems that were being done overseas were brought back into this country, there would only be a, a small replacement of people that would be brought back into the manufacturing process on the floor. But in fact, it created a whole new area for people, again, on the technology end of it, uh, to actually accomplish the same thing. So again, I, I keep coming back to this. Uh, in my view, it's all about understanding right up front what your objectives are, what your goals are, what your constraints are, what your hazards are, and then coming up with a plan to manage those hazards. And again, I say that's, that's not just personnel, that's assets. Uh, that can be environmental. That, that can actually be, for example, in some countries, certainly it can just be your reputation. You know, if you really mess things up, Bhopal is a good example. If you really mess things up, uh, you can become persona non grata in that country, which means that <laughs> whatever reason you went into that country, you no longer are welcome in that country. And I won't name names, but certainly some companies have, have discovered that as well. The, the idea is that, that for risk management uh, and process safety management, there's not that much of a difference between how you manage the entire project and how we would manage process safety for that project itself. It, it all fits together. Well, I want to go back to what you said about the, the cost of actually setting up these procedures. A lot of these procedures, these jobs are actually being done in the field. And just because there's not a procedure doesn't mean the work's not getting done. Now, technology changes. Every time you do a job, that's a new opportunity to add something to a procedure, to refine a, a process, and to really make things more efficient and safer for the guys doing the jobs. And it doesn't take that long, or it doesn't take a lot of time when you're in the job to make a note on a piece of paper and, and add it to the procedure. So yeah, I, I heard the same speech earlier this, this morning about the, the cost of actually doing procedures. But when you think of it as a continuous improvement process, it's incremental improvements that add up to a huge, huge gain. 
Absolutely, and and as a matter of fact, I'll I'll say this: uh, being a person of advanced age, uh, one <laughs> I like that. I have to remember that one. <laughs> uh, one of the things that you have to realize, uh, for example, when when uh, I hired out uh, in '62 on on working on a drilling rig, was basically you know you were given uh, a pair of steel-toed boots, some gloves, and of course you had your your coveralls. Uh, hard hat, and you were just basically turned loose on the floor. Uh, you can imagine uh, when, if you take people who are doing those jobs in the field and have them simply document the steps that they go through, those can be built on over time, and there are some things you'll find out that's not really a good idea, so you stop doing it because you just mashed your finger, for example. Right. But, but you can take that, that knowledge and pass it on to the, to the new generation. So there's gains in efficiency. There's gains in safety. Uh, there's gains just in the, the individual having some idea of what they're getting themselves into before they get out there and actually encounter a problem. So, uh, frankly, I don't buy uh, that there's not enough time to write procedures. I think that uh, it may take some, a little bit of time, but you, you want to benefit from those more experienced people and what they've learned, both the hard way and, and not, uh, how to do that job. And you pass that on to this new person. You are going to improve your safety records simply by doing that. Uh, so, and, and that comes back into the whole thing of PPE. Uh, there's, there's no question that uh, some safety equipment is slow to be accepted by people, but if they understand, and I can give you a real good example that, that I saw firsthand, which is one of the reasons I moved to the derricks, but, <laughs> but uh, if anybody's ever seen a stand of drill pipe snagged and then dropped on the floor, and if you've seen a guy's foot where about half of his toes are missing, you know, the first time I was in the bunkhouse and saw this guy take his boot off and, you know, piece of his foot was missing well what had happened was a piece of drill pipe had been snagged and dropped on his foot and of course it took whatever there was that it touched with it those kind of things that kind of knowledge needs to be imparted and you know one of the things that that I believe procedures do is help people understand for example I, I only had to see that but I, I learned real quick right. that uh, <laughs> so so my point being that uh the procedures can help you capture good practices. It can help you identify uh, practices that perhaps could lead to a problem or an injury. But it's documentation. And, and that same exact philosophy carries all the way over from a drill floor handoff, if you please, to the kind of work that I do now, which, of course, is at a much higher level. Uh, but it's still the process is still the same. It, it, none of that really has changed in that regard. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So when I think about our industry, whether you're talking about upstream, midstream, downstream, service companies, whatever, everything we do in this industry is a project, right? Yeah. So everything in this industry, even if it doesn't have an official project plan, has some type of project plan, even if it's somebody in somebody's head. And so if you get on the front end of that, with these large CapEx intensive projects that have multiple project managers, multiple portfolio managers, multiple work breakdown structures, multiple vendors, multiple suppliers, and you get that stuff done right on the very front end, it makes everybody's job easier, which then goes right back to what we were talking about earlier, where that project hits its deliverable dates, that, that unit comes online when it should, it makes money how it should, but all that relates back to process safety. It does, and, and you know, I, I guess that's one of the things that's always fascinated me, because over the years, um, it, it does boil down to understanding 
the hazards, understanding what you're dealing with, coming up with some kind of a plan. Matter of fact, a conversation I had at lunch was with a gentleman uh, who's a skydiver. And one of the things that he said was, he said, well, you know, he said, I'm, I'm a safety guy. And he said, so I always have a plan B. And the other gentleman was sitting on the other side of me said, I didn't know skydivers had plan B. And I said, sure they do. That's that parachute. That's that extra parachute. <laughs> front, yeah. so, so, you know, if you understand the risk uh, and, and if you simply recognize it, and understand how to have a plan on how to deal with it. I bring up the plan A, plan B, because, uh, it, believe me, n- none of these projects are perfect. I've, I've never seen one yet. I've been doing this for a very long time. But you always want to have a plan B. You know, you, you, a quick story I'll tell you. One of my first construction projects, uh, I was quite young at the time, and uh, I was out in the field, and I recall that uh, there was some problem that we encountered. So I went into the project manager, and uh, I, I spent about five minutes explaining all of this problem to him because it was just, for, in my young mind, it was a terrible problem. So Charlie sat there for a while, and he, he smoked a pipe, so he was chewing on his pipe listening to me. And so finally I ran down. So he sits there, and he looks at me, and he looks at me, and I'm thinking, gosh, uh, what? And he said, so what's the solution? And I said, uh, solution? He threw a fit. He said, don't ever come back in my office with a problem unless you have a solution. And I learned a lesson from that. And that was that, you know, you, you do identify what your problems are, but for goodness sakes, come up with some kind of a solution. And then if that doesn't work, you can try plan B. But it, the work processes really aren't changing or, or different. They're still people-oriented. And the, the truth is that as our technology changes, we've just got more sophisticated tools. They're more accurate. They're faster. They, they allow options that we wouldn't have dreamed of five or ten years ago. Uh, today we can do them with the push of a button. Uh, so the uh, important thing, though, is that the actual processes do. If you follow the, the work processes that uh, process safety management embodies, what you'll find is that works all the way through a project. Regardless of its size, it's simply a question of how many people, how large the project is, et cetera. But those things don't change. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, I've stayed in process safety management and, uh, and intend to stay in process safety management. That's, that's been a, a, a challenging thing for me. So, yeah. Dennis, I wanted to ask you, so what if Dooley Tackaberry is the plan B? When your customers come to you and they haven't gotten you into the feed stage and you're coming in to fix a, fix a problem, you know, what's the number one thing that they come to you for, and how do you approach those rat's nests that you have to sort out? Well, and, and it's interesting you say that because that's exactly what my specialty is, <laughs> is, is try to sort out rat's nests. Uh, basically, uh, there, there's a thing, uh, and there's some excellent books on this, by the way, but there's, there's a thing called project intervention. And that's where you basically stop the process as it exists. And I don't mean you stop things going, but you, you take a snapshot. And you try to find out, for example, where in fact you've got things that are going right, and you try to find out where things are going wrong. And there's times when things are going wrong that it, it's just time to, to fold up and stop whatever that is until you can regroup. You also have to ask yourself, what is most important? For example, if, if you're looking at schedule, uh, you know, you would look at things that, that I would call deal breakers. And you look at those things and you say, okay, well now what is it? that's gonna prevent me from meeting this schedule. 
And so you start to take your resources at that point in time and focus them on the things that are most important. There's a, again, uh, I love if uh, Covey had this thing years ago about, you know, you do first things first. Well, one of the things that you typically find out when you go in on a project and you've got a rat's nest, to, to use your term, is that people lose focus. And sometimes they'll get off into things that really aren't that important or that critical to whatever your objectives are. And it can be price, it can be cost, it can be scheduled, it can be a number of different things. There, there was an example that Covey gave that I always loved. He said that, that um, you know, there was this crew that were out in the jungle and they had the machetes and they were hacking their way through the jungle. Well, finally, one guy climbed up on a tree and he looked down and he hollered and he said, hey, stop, you're going in the wrong direction. And they hollered back up at him and they said, shut up, we're making progress. <laughs> so one of the things that a company like mine does is try to sit down with a client and with, with it, typically an engineering uh, and construction company and, and try to find out you know, what the real drivers are, what's most important. Uh, find out uh, where we've got some, some deal stoppers, some show stoppers. Uh, find out what kind of resources we have. Can we bring in additional resources? Do we need additional resources? Do we just need to shift resources? Because what, what Dooley Tackerberry does in this so cradle-to-grave concept is that we're going to help you at that point take this all the way through to the finish line. Uh, one of the shortcomings that, that we have in our system is that you can have one company that does a conceptual, you can have another company that does the feed package, you can have another company that actually does engineering design, and you can have another company that actually does construction. So how in the world do you manage those diverse functions, and uh, how do you in fact uh, put the responsibility on whatever comes out of it where it ought to be? And so the difference between a company like mine uh, is that, that if we take cradle to grave, there is no other finger pointing that's going to take place simply. It's, it, it's right here in River City. Um, but that's what, again, uh, when you were asking about this, this rat's nest, that's one of the things that I see that uh, probably leads to an awful lot of misunderstandings uh, and missed budgets and missed schedules is that, let's say, the, the people that did the feed package underestimate the cost of the job and let's say and I, I just dealt with one about two years ago from South Africa where they had a company that that did the feed package uh, they thought they had a budget let's say five billion dollars they awarded uh, the EPC contract that thing has probably doubled uh, over the past two years in cost and it's behind schedule. Now, would you say that's the EPC contractor's fault, or would you say that that was the, the package that they were given to deal with? Actually, it was a combination of both. When, when I went in and looked at that one, it was both a combination of, let's, let's call it very optimistic projections by the feed contractor. Uh, it was a question of, uh, in my view, not being allowed adequate time to properly develop uh, the estimate itself. So they, they, they dramatically underestimated the cost. Uh, another one of the things that, that they really did not do a good job of was, was trying to forecast both uh, material cost, labor costs, and, and currency exchange. They, they missed on all of them. So the, the, the end result was that uh, once the CPC contractor got into the project itself, uh, it was obvious that there, there were some real problems. They didn't uh, address those early enough. And so what ultimately happened before I was brought in 
was that uh, they had started to this management of change uh, because the EPC contractor was coming back saying, well, we've got to have more money, we've got to have more time. The client uh, resisting that and uh, rather than dealing with the issues. Uh, and so that delayed things even more, which caused costs to escalate even more. Uh, and by the time uh, I was brought into the project, uh, it was not beyond repair, but it was beyond salvage as far as budget and schedule was concerned. The only thing the client could do at that point in time, pay the money, get it done, and that's, that's where things then just went totally uh, out of control on that project. Yeah, I didn't think you were going to say the error in exchange rate was in their favor and enough to cover the costs that they overran. Never. <laughs> it, it never. That's, it's funny you say that, but that, that's Murphy's Law, and you're yeah. exactly right. Yeah. yeah, so Dennis, I want to uh, pause you right here because we're getting close to the end of our time, but um, you know, we have a Red Wing safety tip of the week, and we'd like to see uh, what, uh, what your uh, input would be for that safety tip. I'd, I'd be glad to. Uh, I'm going to go back to my roughnecking days because this, this was a period of time when probably uh, – uh, safety was was in its infancy, if you please. And uh, what what I learned very quickly in the, the story I gave just earlier about the, the steel-toed boots, um, you can't emphasize the, the necessity of good safety equipment and the proper safety equipment, uh, whether it's for eye protection. Uh, I've seen some horrible things happen in, in that regard because uh, the proper eye protection wasn't worn. You know, there, there's a reason that you have standards for eye protection, for example. Uh, same thing with hard hats. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize it, but you can drop a bolt off that scaffold, uh, and, and that can kill you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and people did, or a nut. I mean, you know, with... with and I'm not talking about the Derek man. I'm talking about the, I'm talking about the hardware that that people sometimes just don't think about what can happen in an instant, uh, whether it's your eyesight, whether it's a finger, whether it's a toe, um, or your head. Uh, another thing that I learned a hard way, unfortunately for me, was that if if you have crouched down and you start to stand up, I've I've actually just stood up with a hard hat on and would hit something solid. Uh, and, and just literally knock you to your knees. And I can't imagine if you didn't have that hard hat on, what that would have done to my skull, even as thick as mine is, by the way. Yeah, it's always a brutal lesson in physics. I think we've all done it at least once. <laughs> and with a hard hat on, and you're right, without the hard hat on, it's like I would not want to know what happened with that. Yeah. Um, so um, this has all been great. You know, Patrick, um, we may have to talk about uh, getting Dennis back on because I want to go. I wanted to go geek out about the whole fire stuff. We didn't get a chance to go. No, we didn't talk about the hardware, but we talked a lot about procedures. But yeah, Dennis has got a, you know, I think you've got a lot to say about the hardware so installation. So we may, we actually get him back on and have another show about the whole fire thing. So it's something I know nothing about, but I know that's real important in our industry. That brings us to this week's winner of Red Wings Offshore Bag. And this week's winner is... Max Feldman. He's a process engineer at CB&I. Congratulations, Max. You are this week's winner of the Red Wing Offshore Bag. If you want to win one of your own awesome Red Wing offshore bags, just go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. See a site for official rules and details. All right, so um, let's talk a little about LinkedIn group. If you like the show, which hopefully you do, uh, we have a LinkedIn group. It's uh, Oil & Gas Global Network. It's where all the shows uh, reside. It's sort of the sister for all the shows for this one, Oil & Gas This Week, and for our upcoming Oil & Gas Industry Leaders uh, by Paige Wilson, who, who Jake, I mean, um, Patrick, got a, uh, Jake uh, read a shout-out 
Uh, we had somebody from the UK that worked for Royal Dutch Shell gave Paige a shout out oh, for yeah? a future show. Yeah, I thought that was cool, um, which now means we have to actually get it out there. Um, next thing, if you want to help us a lot, please, 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 we need reviews. Well, we don't have enough of them. Um, I've had several people reach out and tell me that it's hard to give a review on iTunes, like literally the process. So, Patrick, um, throw that link in from HubSpot where it actually takes you step by step. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's a great, great little tutorial to walk you through it. Yeah, and it's it just you know it takes two or three minutes. Leave us a review. It helps us get in front of more people. and helps to um, helps us help more of your professionals stay safe in oil and gas. Uh, we talked about the change in feeds. One of the things that we had come up on the other show, Patrick, is that people, even though they're subscribed to the right feed, it doesn't automatically update. If that's you, if you're listening to me, and that's you, whether you're on Android, iOS, or whatever, uh, what we've figured out that works on all platforms, on all podcast players, is unsubscribe from this podcast, um, reboot your mobile device. Then reopen the podcast app and resubscribe. It should fix it. And then um, we have a website. If you like the show, it's allandgashsne.com. It's where we'll announce everything first. Right after that, we'll announce stuff second. LinkedIn group, we're still looking at doing a HSNE live event uh, this year. Um, probably second quarter now because it looks like this first quarter is going to slip. And then we want to say uh, thank you very much to our on-the-road sponsor, Lee Heck and Harrison. Uh, they allow us to go to these type of events. Uh, Lee Heck and Harrison is the global expert in talent management. They're currently helping 75% of the Fortune 500 oil and gas companies simplify the complexity of leadership and workforce transformation. So if you're an oil and gas company and you have a workforce, <laughs> reach out to Lee Heck and Harrison. They can sure help you. We're on the road, Patrick. We're here at uh, Process Safety. We've got Texas Open Innovation coming in. Uh, we have SP HSNE conference. We're going to be all over OTC, and the BPMS 150. We've been invited to. Uh, we're going to do a show with them in the next couple of weeks, and we've also been invited to go to their event. And if y'all don't know that one, I would say a huge uh, multiple sclerosis charity event bike ride from Houston to Austin in April, later part of April. Yeah, make sure we put a link in the show notes so people yep. check us. That, that money goes to a really, really good cause. If you like the show and you'd like to hear more, if you'd like Patrick and I to come speak to your event, your trade association, your school, your gun club, whatever, reach out to Patrick and I. We'd be happy to share the details. Uh, Patrick, is that about everything? Did you talk about Facebook? Because that is apparently the place to go. <laughs> yeah, if um, we, we started this thing, and actually we had one go uh, viral last week, but we'll do the first 5, 10, maybe 15 minutes of the show on Facebook Live, so you actually get to see us, which may be a good thing or maybe not be a good thing. Um, and then Mark we, always hides me, though. <laughs> I don't do that on purpose. Um, but if you want to check that out, go to Facebook. Go to the Oil and Gas Global Network page. You can see all of our, our Facebook Live videos. They catch them there, so you can see the old ones as well. And yes, I know the audio is not perfect. We are working on a solution, uh, much to the chagrin of my wife. Mark is literally <laughs> building a, a solution to this. I literally have a soldering iron that I'm working <laughs> on trying to build a solution to this. And I'm not quite there yet, but I'm this close. Uh, Dennis, if uh, man, this was great. I mean, just, I love this. You have a passion for what you do. You have an experience. You got a lot of uh, knowledge. Um, you tell a good story. If people wanted to find out more about, uh, and we'll get it right, this du by Dooley Tackerberry. Yep. Uh, where should they go? Well, they've certainly got a website, Dooley Tackerberry. Uh, we're located in Houston, Texas, and uh, certainly they could go there and uh, contact uh, the office, ask for me. Uh, I'd be glad to sit down and visit with them. Yeah, so Patrick will put a link in the show notes yep. so people can just click on there. Thank you. Um, is that about it? Ready to get out of here? Yeah, I think so. All right, folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com.
Houston, to London, to Dubai, and beyond. You'd have to be an old-time uh, oilfield person to uh, probably recognize what a Geronimo is. Oh, I don't yeah. even know what that is. You know what that is? Yeah, I've never been down one, uh, but... Uh. Well, <laughs> there used to be, uh, of course, being younger, uh, there was always this challenge of, of riding the Geronimo down. That's only for emergency evacuation out of the derrick. Uh, but uh, that, that was one of the things that we used to... Uh, find as a form of entertainment you know <laughs> when we're drilling uh and there really wasn't that much going on you know it was just to climb up in the derrick and ride the geronimo down and uh you know that it's a zip line oh it's yeah a yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 that was the original zip line mm-hmm. that, that, i hadn't thought about that but it was the original <laughs> zip line scary how uh, did you stop uh, well, there's a break on there. Okay, uh, okay. Uh, but but you're only holding on. There's no uh-huh. safety harness or anything <laughs> like that. You just grab hold of it and jump off that derrick and away you go. Oh, that's crazy. Uh, it's, it's, it, was, it was quite a thrill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can tell you.